Hi, I'm Spencer Krauss. I've been building robots for over 20 years. In that time, I've seen a lot of interesting things, and I've heard a lot of interesting stories. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is a place where my colleagues and I can relax, have a drink, and talk about some of the crazier things we've seen at work and some of the experiences we've had that have gotten us to where we are today. Subscribe today to join the collaboration. Welcome to the Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Krauss. Our guest today is Sean Dotson, informer, not influencer, and former president and CTO of R&D Automation. Sean, welcome to the pod. Hey, Spencer. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for coming on. It's uh, good to finally be doing this. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been a little while. We've uh, had some crazy schedules the last few weeks, but uh, good, good to be on. Amen, brother. Good to have you. So... Um, I was telling you before the show, I, I looked at one of your LinkedIn posts that said, you know, tired of doing everything at your company? I can help. <laughs> and I wanted to comment, but I was too self-conscious, so I didn't. <laughs> is that a recurring theme for business owners that you've worked with? Um, I know it is. I'm kind of just setting you up here. But Yeah. No, yeah, it is. Um, you know, I, I find that in our industry, you know, a lot of people who start automation companies, manufacturing companies, things like that. They're, they're go-getters. They are driven, you know, they, they want to do everything themselves. Um, I was the same way. Um, you know, people who know me well, uh, you know, in the beginning they were like, Sean was a control freak, you know, he wanted it his way. He wanted to do it all. Um, but over the years, over, you know, having R and D for 18 years, being in the industry for 26, 27, I, I, I learned probably about, I don't know, seven, five to seven years ago that the only way really to scale your business and to focus on the strategy and work on the business, not in the business, is to delegate some of those tasks. Um, hire some really good people who you trust uh, and then let them make decisions. You you may not always agree with their decisions. Um, you may have done things a little bit differently, but you, you got to give them the ability to be their own people and to take care of things. And, you know, there were times where I, I, some of my staff would do, do things. And I was just like, eh, I might not have done it that way, but there's really no harm, no foul. So let's just go. And the more you do that, the more you realize that when you let people who know what they're doing, do their job, uh, things just become so much easier for, for the owner or the president or, or whoever it happens to be, or, or even, you know, just a middle manager who's, Hiring a bunch of really good engineers to do the things that they need to be doing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't like a little bit guilty of getting trapped in my business. <laughs> so, I think I we all are. That. I mean, you know, this, that's that's something I see a lot of is working in the business instead of on the business. And it's a, it's a term that's a little bit cliche, but if you really break it down, it, it, it's really true. You have to work on both. And you have to find the right people to work on certain things, right? So maybe, you know, maybe maybe an engineering manager is not the best person to be looking at strategy. Um, maybe they are. It just depends on the the individual. Um, but but you've got to identify those people who are really good at working on strategy and looking at the long term, looking at two, three, five years out. And I see a lot of business owners are are very guilty of not looking that far out. They're just worried about the next project or six months from now or a year from now. Um, and it really limits you to scale. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. We've been growing a little bit lately, and a lot of that, I think, is due to um, me starting to prioritize sales over just fun R&D projects. 
<laughs> and then, I mean, I don't know, from up until now, SK has pretty much been just like me and a bunch of subcontractors. And I'm getting ready to maybe hire somebody for like, you know, as a full-time partner, uh, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's difficult, uh, but also it seems to be at the point where it has to happen or the business isn't going to end up growing at all. So, yeah, there's only so much, only so much one person can do, right? Yeah. Um, it also gives you, uh, it gives you a different perspective. Uh, it gives you somebody to argue with, you know, and I mean that in a good way. It's, you know, I think we should be doing X and, you know, your, your partner or your VP or whoever, your right-hand person is going to go like, well, you know, I, I disagree. Maybe we should be doing Y. And as long as you're open and receptive to be talking about this, it, it allows you to have a sounding wall. Um, it allows you to double check with somebody. Um, I had a I had a business mentor for a number. Of, actually, it's two people. It was, a, it was a partnership that I hired on as a business mentor back uh, probably about ten years ago. And sometimes it was just a matter of I'd, I'd sit back and say, "Well, you know, I think I maybe should hire another salesperson." And they'd be like, "Yeah, you should tomorrow. Go do it. Why aren't you doing this? Go. You know, we're going <laughs> to check back in in a month." And you better have some news for us that you've got a couple of candidates, right? So that's awesome. Um, it's kind of like meeting your friend at the gym, you know? It's like, yeah, I don't want to go to the gym this morning, but my friend's going to be there, and now can I help accountable? So I'm going to go ahead and show up at the at the gym and do the workout together, just because uh, you know I, I promised them I was going to do something. So how did you hire your first person? Like, what was that? You know, when did you make that decision? How'd you get over that hurdle? So like? yeah, we were probably. We were probably about two years into the business. So it was it was myself and I had two minor partners. They were engineers that I had worked with um, at the company that we, um, well, I say we left. They actually, we kept getting bought by larger and larger companies. We were part <laughs> of a multi-billion dollar um, European conglomerate. And uh, they decided our facility, they were going to shut down our facility. Um, we were We were doing well. We were about a $50 million division, but we were you know the smallest of all of them so my job was 50 to, million yeah huh. just 50 million you know well when, you, <laughs> when you're a two or three billion dollar company you know 50 million is not a lot so but uh, they, they hired me basically did the, the move products around the world be a lap down at the door and lock the door so i brought my two top engineers with me we kind of started r d from the ground up um just with our knowledge of doing custom automation and we did that for about two years very similar to what you were, were doing with contractors. We you know, contracted out all our programming, contracted out all of our um, electrical design because we, we were actually three mechanical designers and engineers. Um, so we knew enough about electrical and controls to be dangerous. I was a little bit of a programmer, but you know, not, not really great. So we subbed it all out for about two years and then we decided, you know, we really need to bring on a, another design engineer because my role had started shifting more towards sales and and promoting the the company and, and going out and trying to find more business so uh we brought him on um his name was aaron lane and uh to this day when i when i you know left r d about uh nine months ago uh he was my you know, vp of operations um so he started as employee number one and 17-ish years later he's still there and he was my right hand guy he took care of everything day to day um, so that was about the time we, we, you know, two to three years in, we, we hired our first person and then another person, uh, an electrical, uh, slash, uh, controls engineer, nice. and then another one, and then another mechanical and then a purchasing person. And then it just, that just starts snowballing from there. Yeah. That's awesome. So you went technical first and then you 
kind of pulled back into other sort of softer skills. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer by, by education, did a lot of robotics work in college or my university, University of Florida, go Gators, even though we lost horribly the other day. Um, ah, yeah. Let's not talk did, about that. Yeah. <laughs> did, a, did a lot of uh, programming, robot programming as well. But um, as with any business, sales is like blood. So you have to be able to sell. So I quickly realized that, you know, a lot of work was in the beginning was coming in word of mouth. Um, a lot of our vendors were helping us get work saying, hey, Sean, we were just in this plant XYZ and we noticed you know, they definitely need some some automation. You might want to go visit them. I mean, we could make the introduction for you. Nice. So uh, but then after a while, you just you can't rely on that anymore. You need to start going out and marketing yourself and really start selling to people. So I transitioned more into just sales um, at that point and marketing. And quite honestly, I led sales, you know, for for 18 years. Um, I, I had some sales managers that would help manage some of the salespeople, but ultimately sales and applications still always reported to me, uh, even though everything else, you know, eventually operations, manufacturing, purchasing, that all reported to, to other people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the president's often the main salesperson for a company. Yeah. That's, that's exactly, yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really cool. So what are the uh, what are some of the more interesting things you've gotten to work on over the years um, through your work at R&D and, and otherwise? Oh, boy, we have done a lot of things. We I always said we were dumb enough not to say no in the beginning. So, you know, we we would take we would take on projects that uh, we probably had no business taking on, to be honest with you. But somehow, you know, through uh, through luck or skill, uh, we always we always ended up being pretty successful on these projects. But we uh, we did a lot of work in the contact lens industry. We did a lot of work in the hydraulic valve, uh, cartridge valve industry for like uh, bobcats and mobile cranes and things like that. Um, we did when the e-cigarette industry really took off. We built a lot of uh, machines for the e-cigarette industry, and that was a fairly short-lived. It was, it was good money, but it was a fairly you know short-lived industry. Um, we would we we've done um, 50 millimeter you know rocket propelled grenade uh, nice. work uh, where we actually had to build a you know inch thick steel enclosure and the machine was inside of it so in case it did blow up you know operators were protected and we actually had to build two of the enclosures because they had to take one of them go put them out in the field and explode around inside of it to make sure that it was going to uh, you know be able to withstand the uh, the uh, explosion. Right? So it withstood so, it, but it was still not in any condition to use after that. I'm oh guessing. no, no, no! It's uh, yeah, it, it it was warped and bent and all, but we had pressure sensors all around it to, to measure how much concussive force came out of it. it had to be under a certain you know PSI um, to be able to consider it safe. Um, so you know, there's there's all kinds of interesting projects. We were we were at the automate a um, the little thing that goes in your finger, the pulse oximeter. Um, you know, that you clip onto the doctor's office. Well, yeah. if you're in a hospital. They have one that's kind of made out of like a Band-Aid type material that's got the sensor in it and this wire that plugs into the machine. Well, this wire has got memory. Um, the, the, believe it or not, the tolerance on the wire is like plus or minus two or three inches. Um, it's a Band-Aid, so it's sticky. Um, huh. So they wanted us to automate building this entire thing. So and at first we said, no, there's, there's no freaking way that we're going to automate this thing. There's so many red flags. And they kept coming back and asking, you know, come on, we really need you to do this. So we said, all right, you know, give us some money for a proof of principle. Let's figure out 
the, the, the difficult parts of this, how to, how to coil up this wire and deal with the memories from the wire, how to deal with the stickiness of the Band-Aid. And, um, you know, one of our engineers found this coating uh, that could go on to steel or aluminum that the stickiest material in the world, if you stuck it to it, if you turned it over, just fall right off. <laughs> so we were able to just stick the Band-Aid using vacuum onto these these parts and then be able to just pull it right off and then put the backing paper on it and then, you know, go off and uh, be sterilized after that. That's so, pretty awesome. Um, we kind of got to know, some, somebody said, R&D is the company you go to when nobody else can figure it out. And I, I took that up as a point of pride. But I also said, yeah, but I also want you to think of us when it's a project that everybody else can do, too. The easy ones, right? We don't always want the hard ones. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was. We, we, we really did push the boundaries on a lot of automation projects. So it was, it was a lot of fun. So where did the name R&D come from? <laughs> so R&D came from the last names of the founders. I thought so, it might be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was Robertson, Naylor, and Dotson. And, nice. and people always ask, well, Sean, you were the president. Why wasn't it, you know, DNR? Well, that's do not resuscitate. That's not a very good name. And NRD is nerd, right? So maybe that could have been a good name for an automation <laughs> company. And we also like the, the, the play on words of research and development. Yeah, I figured. So, yeah. Um, although I always tell people our very first job, our first check, they actually cut it to R ampersand B automation and the bank wouldn't cash it. Brutal. So we, we had to go back to the, to the uh, company and say, could you please get our name right? <laughs> that is rough. Yeah, we get SKA solutions a lot of times. I think I might've yeah. even just registered as a DBA by now just to avoid that problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I think everybody, the name of their company originally, I mean, you know, the, the official name of the company was, R&D automation and engineering. And it was just a mouthful. And after about two or three years, I did the same thing in DBA, just R&D automation. We're just, we're, we're shortening it down. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I also love the uh, the idea of like working on something, building a duplicate and then detonating one of the two things. That just, that's that was hilarious. Interesting, <laughs> interesting company to work for. They, they did a lot of, munitions for police and the army and uh, they made things um flashbang grenades that actually were very very thin you know like the material that um a postal tote is made out of kind of honeycomb material yeah plastic you know landed um they would put explosive basically in that honeycomb material and it was a little <laughs> square and you basically could slide it under a door and you know it would go off and and confuse the people inside it was a non-lethal yeah. weapon but it, you know explode in there and then the police could come in and all that so we did some work on those and uh it was it was fun we got to, we got to go to their facility a few times where they had their proving grounds where we got to see them shoot these things and blow up and all and let's be honest what you know what 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 red-blooded uh engineer doesn't like uh you know seeing things blow up right or blowing things up themselves yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> yeah no that was um that was definitely one of my hobbies in high school was uh explosives <laughs> I think I think all all males in high school dabbled in that a little bit. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and then I did battle bots when I got to grad school. Ah, so uh, yes, yes. Oh yeah, those that's that's a lot of fun. I quite honestly, I I always wanted to you know the, the little mobile battle bots with the spinning blades and all that. That's that's really been interesting. But I kind of always wanted to see like an industrial battle bots. So I always wanted to take a big you know big huge you know five hundred kg arm. And, and have two of them just, you know, 
go at Duke it, it out. beat the crap out of each other, kind of rock em, sock em robot style. So you're thinking like it's got to be an industrial arm, like the biggest thing Fanuc or Kuka or ABB makes, or it's yeah, got to be speak. like just a large thing. Yeah, I mean, it could be. It could be either. I just think, I mean, since they're already, you know, you don't have to necessarily design the robot. You can just go buy one of them. And then the fun would be, what kind of in-the-barn tool do we put on this thing to, to you know, to blow up the other robot or, you know, cut cut the electrical lines or, or something to that effect, you know. A um, lot, lot of money to ruin a good, you know, a perfectly good industrial robot, but uh, it, the, it, it could be entertaining. What do those bigger models go for, typically? I've, I've never, um, we just don't yeah, do a lot with off-the-shelf arms. Big, a big palletizing robot could be, you know, anywhere from seventy-five to hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, that is worth it for the I, entertainment. You know, I, I honestly can't recall with the the big, big fanic. I can't recall how much it is. I want to say it's north of two fifty, though. Sounds um, right. It's yeah, it's a it's an expensive it's an expensive uh, piece of uh, equipment. So to get one of those sawed in half for the sake of entertainment might be, might right. be good fun. Could you <laughs> yeah, armor it, yeah. or do you have to run it stock? Like, can you can you just put like AR five hundred and titanium I, around the outside? I, I don't know. We're making, apparently we're making up the rules for this yeah. uh, competition as we go. So no, yeah, it might be uh, going to be a sport. Yeah, maybe. There we go. There we go. Yeah. I uh, you know when we start talking about the price of some of this stuff, people who who don't understand how much industrial equipment costs, I I you know I bring in people, non-technical people to our shop and we'd have a small machine, maybe with just two scarers on it doing a, you know, a welding operation or ultrasonic welding or dispensing or something like that with a small dial on it all. And I'd be like, what do you think this thing costs? Right. And they'd be like, oh, I don't know, hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars. I'm like, <laughs> try, you know, try 450. Right. And they're like, that's more than my house. And I'm like, yeah. And it's six by six. Right. And they're, they're like, that they, their mind is blown about how expensive you know, automation equipment can be. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've got this, like the, the prospective customer that's not sales qualified at all that comes to you and they want it like a robot work cell for $30,000. And you're like, I'm sorry, yeah. we can't do that. <laughs> you know? yeah. No, I used, I used to, I used to yell at all the robot salespeople all the time because somebody would go to a trade show. They'd go talk to one of the robot manufacturers and go, well, how much is the robot? And they'd say, Oh, robots, you know, $25,000, So then they'd come to us and go like, oh, so for 50, you can build me a machine, right? And I'm like, no, for 50, I can barely put a tool and program that robot. For 30,000, you have a really pretty paperweight. You know, it's a statue. That's basically it. So I would, I would always tell the sales guys at the robot company, let me do me a favor. Tell them that pretty much 30,000, yes, is the cost of the robot, but double to triple that just to get that robot, you know, working, programmed, safety um you know co controls everything and then you've got things like you know, the dial indexer or the linear motion platform and the leak tester or the ultrasonic welder and all it's all of this stuff really starts adding up you know sure. in my in my in my i always said i had two two ways of thinking about money in my personal life and in, in the industrial world so in my you know my personal life i'd I'd see a TV for, I don't know, $300, right? And I was just like, well, what if I can get it for $290 somewhere else? Oh, I found it for $285. Oh, I found it for $275 on sale, right? Meanwhile, you know, in my in my industrial you know life, I'd be doing a design review or something, and I'm like, which air cylinder are you using there? Oh, it's, you know, this air cylinder from XYZ. How much is that cylinder? Uh, you know, $600. Ah, it's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, good. Use that one. 
right? So, you know, having $600 for an air cylinder and yeah, but I, arguing I, about a $250 TV, right? You know, it's, it is, does seem like hypocrisy when you say it that way, but I do the same exact thing. And part of it, I think, is that I'm, I'm billing by the hour for my time. And so if I mm-hmm. deliberate about it too much, then I've just exceeded the cost of the part just in my billable yeah. hours. And so yeah. I think it behooves my clients for me to be quick and decisive and yes. use the yeah. nicer parts so we don't eat up a whole lot of man hours. Oh, absolutely. Person hours. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we, um, we got... You know, standardization has always been really important. We started standardizing uh, platforms uh, five, seven years ago, probably when, uh, you know, we, we said, all right, we're, we're designing a small, medium, large, extra large dial index base platform, you know, frame, pneumatics, servo motor, tooling plate, you know, guarding, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, every station is going to be customized, but we're tired of reinventing the wheel all the time, right? And we would do things like we're putting in a 16 valve manifold, whether the machine needs eight or 16 it doesn't matter we'll just put blanking plates in because it's cheaper to always have that 16 always use that 16 stock it you know get get quantities of scale on it um same thing for grippers you know we had like nine grippers you know small medium large in two finger three finger and parallel and nice. you're using one of these nine grippers unless there's some reason you can't use it um just to make the decision process you know faster right yeah it's makes like, a lot of sense think to about me. what river i want to use i just want to use this gripper so we did that for dial indexers for linear motion you know platforms for some of our, our packaging equipment and the medical side you know our, our, our vertical uh, poucher and our, our horizontal form full seal machines and all we really just standardization is super important to to help your margins that's awesome yeah and it's it's a huge thing for like design for service too i mean if you have you know, one type of robot as opposed to, you know, right. 10 piecemeal whatevers yeah. that all have their own components they need your service department to stock or you have to wait to get in stock when <laughs> something breaks. Yep. I mean, you know, it's just a way better, way better thing. I mean, right. it even goes even, down to the fastener level if you talk about like design for assembly sure. and service. Sure. You yeah. know, if you have, oh, you know, two types absolutely. of fasteners on a machine versus, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. 20. It's way easier for your technician to sort out where they go when they're putting the thing Absolutely. back together. Absolutely. Absolutely. We used to drive down to my engineers. It's like, look, if, if that gripper requires M5 screws to attach the gripper to the to the mounting plate, then as long as it makes sense, use M5 screws to attach the mounting plate to the other block or oh, yeah. to, to the robot, right? Try to have all the same screw. Now, you know, you can't get... You know, you can't get ridiculous. You can't use an M5 screw when you're talking about a thousand pound piece of something, maybe. But yeah. try to just keep that as common as as possible. Um, you know, which is why we, we we pushed back on you know imperial. Uh, people would say like, oh, our, our standard is imperial fasteners, and I said, well, no. I'm like, I can build you a fully metric machine. I cannot build you a fully imperial machine because all the air cylinders, the robots, the servo motors, they all have metric fasteners. So do you want to mix? Or do you want all one standard? Do you want to use one set of wrenches or two sets of wrenches, right? So, um, and most you know most manufacturers are like, yeah, we only want to use one set of wrenches. There you go, metric. <laughs> yep, metric. We metric should have done it, it a long time ago. Yeah, didn't I? I heard the U.S. automotive industry tried to switch to metric in the '70s, and the Oregon kind of got rejected. Uh, yeah. We, I switched to metric myself, um, pretty much right after school. I was imperial all yep. through like grad school, and then. Yeah, I came yeah. around early in my career and just, you know, <laughs> metric is way better. I don't know. It makes more sense. Oh, it, it is. It makes so much more sense. Yeah. yeah. The, the auto, I, I put my way through college as an auto mechanic. Um, and that was, that was oh, in the, cool. the, the mid, the mid nineties. 
And so I was working on a lot of cars that were made in the eighties, you know, and later eighties. And I just remember uh, Chevy and Ford, both, they would have a mixture of metric and English fasteners in the vehicles. And I, just that's just would, the worst. I, Oh, I just curse those cars every single time. I'd have to. Well, if you don't them. know if it's an M6 or a quarter twenty, I mean that's. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the, you, you gotta you're gonna it get a rounded. Does it quite fit? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brutal. Yeah, we're we're doing a project now with the fasteners where we're unifying fasteners on a design we inherited, and the idea mm-hmm. is to have small and large fasteners. Yeah. So, sure. I mean, you know, sure. Basically, exactly. just two sizes. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we would try to do that too. Pick like you know, five or six, and these are the only five or six you, you know you use. Try, try not to use the M two point five. Yeah, you know, invariably somebody makes a gripper or a motor or something that uses you know two point five. But yeah, you can't get away from it. But uh, yeah, standardization. <laughs> yep. You know, the less the less choices you have, the better in a lot of ways. As long as you have vetted those choices to make sure that they're valid. And yeah. Some, sometimes overkill is a little bit better. It's it's like, yeah, maybe I don't need an airline quite that big or a fastener quite that big, but if it doesn't detract from the design, then just use the larger, you know, airline. It's going to cost you, what, an extra 20 cents of, of airline to, you know, to plumb up the robot or to plumb up this 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 air cylinder. So um, it, you, you really got to be able to time this money, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. You, you got to be able to get those machines off the floor, especially when you're building custom machines. The longer it sits on the floor, the lower your margin is going to be. I mean, that, you talk to any machine builder, and that's the truth. The longer it sits on that floor, people just charge, charge time and money to that to that project. Yeah, makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, you know, gotten bit by that early in my career when, you know, we let a thing sit around a little too long and, you know. It's, right. It's like, oh, yeah. crap, the rent alone is eating us alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They start running out yeah. of space, right? Yeah, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So what sorts of things are you working on these days? So I... I exited from R&D, um, and I think a lot of people know my story, but I, but I sold the company in December of 2020 to a private equity firm. Um, oh, we were part of a um, part of a three-company group. There was an uh, industrial distributor. There was an electrical panel shop that we uh, acquired, and then you know, R&D. Um, and I was CTO over all, all three organizations and president of R&D. Um, so I exited, that was in December, 2020. I already said that, sorry. Um, okay. but, um, I exited in October. Um, and you know, some people who had done this before, who had sold the company and then exited said, Sean, take some time off. Like you've been doing this for you know 27 years, running a company for 18, just at least six months, just don't do anything. And, um, I kind of promptly ignored them, um, <laughs> because I'm just that person. I just, you know, I, I'm always trying to do something new and all. So I, I dabbled around a little bit with, um, a startup. Um, I actually worked with a gentleman over in Germany. Um, we were looking at coming up with a easy to use drag and drop, um, PLC replacement basically. Um, you know, instead of ladder logic, which I know this is a holy war in our industry, but in my opinion is the most, you know, it's a 65 plus year old language. It's just super antiquated. Um, I know people love it. I've hated it since day one. (laughs) Um, 
I, I've told this story before. I actually got to to know Dick Morley, the grandfather of the PLC, kind of well. I would go to the same conference every year, and I'd see him year after year after year. And and I finally, you know, one day, he was just, you know, I asked him about ladder logic and like, should it be replaced? And he's like, yes, it should be replaced. He's like, I came up with that thing, you know, 60 years ago. He's like, why aren't you the guy? Why haven't you moved on to a new language? So it always kind of inspired me to to work on that. And I always thought about doing it, but I just, you know, never had time in R and D. So I decided, all right, let's try this. So. We developed a, um, a working prototype of a drag and drop kind of block based language where you could, um, you know, turn turn inputs and outputs on and off and all that. And um, started approaching uh, some 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 VC folks. And right about the time that the bottom dropped out of the, the VC market, right when everybody stopped, you know, investing. Which as you know, if you if you follow the 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 uh, you know industrial um, VC market right now. There's a few companies getting money, but but not a lot, right? So uh, we decided that rather than beating our head against the wall, um, you know, fill 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 fast, right? Um, so we said, all right, we're not spending any more money on this. We're gonna we're gonna put it to the side and kind of mothball it until maybe the the environment comes a little bit better. So it's kind of in the back pocket. Um, and I've been doing um, some advising, um, sitting on some boards of some manufacturing companies who want to automate or want to improve their processes um but they're you know but they're really not sure how to so just coming in and looking around their facility and saying hey guys that's a good project maybe to automate and that's a good one to to look at and and here's some things you want to consider um you know if you want some names of some companies who could who could help you out i can recommend people who work in that that space and that's their niche and things like that so um kind of just been doing a little a, a lot of small things to be honest with you um, and then at the same time, um, you know, I've been approached by, by a few companies of, you know, uh, them wanting me to come in some sort of leadership, um, capacity, uh, nothing has firmed up yet, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still interested in, you know, helping a company that is maybe not quite doing as well as they could, um, but they just need to get to the next level, you know? So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Maybe a leader who's been running this company for 15, 20, 30 years, maybe even, right? And maybe they just need some fresh eyes and some fresh blood and, and, and maybe somebody to come in and say, okay, I know you've always done it this way, but let's try something a little bit different. And let's see if we can get this thing to grow a little bit more. Awesome. Now that's all really good stuff. I remember you showed me the, uh, the PLC replacement demo, by the way. I was a huge fan mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Whenever you do dust that off, I um, there's some people I'd want to show it to. <laughs> yeah, it's I I think it's got some legs. I mean, it's not going to replace you know high high end um, you know uh, multi -ser multi axis servo projects with ten robots and things like that. But what what I found is in the automation world, there's there's a good number. I'd say at least fifty percent of machines that are just they're pretty small. They don't have a lot of I/O. It's maybe it's maybe a robot picking a part, putting it into an ultrasonic welder, pulling it out and putting it in a tray, right? Just some little simple human replacement operation, right? Um, and and you don't need a lot of horsepower to do that. Yeah. Uh, and you don't need you don't need a really highly complex programming language. I mean, I I knew I was onto something when I showed it to you know my daughter who's fourteen and a bunch of her friends who are not programmers at all. I showed them ladder logic and I'm like, what does this do? They're like. We have no clue what this does. <laughs> I showed them this. I showed them the same program in in our language, and they were like, 
oh yeah so if that sensor turns on then do this other thing over here and then you know keep looping back around until this thing turns on and they you know at 14 years old they were at least able to to follow the logic of nice. the software that's awesome and I feel like that is often the hallmark of like good design is, you know, can anybody just pick it up with a minimal learning yeah. curve and figure it out pretty quick? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, people have asked before, like, what's the next big thing in automation? And I think it's ease of use. Yeah. Uh, I think automation has always been this, this area where you have to have, you know, really smart, really highly technically trained people that know how to use these components. And even, and even then, I mean, we we get a new component in, and our controls engineers would have to go spend you know, ten twenty hours sometimes training themselves on either new software or new communication protocols or something like that. Um, manufacturers can't do that for themselves, um, and selfishly, of course, yes, we want them to buy equipment from us. But if we want the manufacturing industry as a whole in the United States to grow, some of those manufacturers need to be able to do some of the simpler stuff themselves. They need to be able to take a robot plunk it down and, and have it pick and place that thing into the welder and pull it back out again without having to go to integrators. Yeah. Um, you know, what COVID showed us was we don't have enough automation companies in the United States to keep up. I mean, because everybody was a year to two year backlog. And and that was a big spike in automation, right? But so if we have another big spike in automation, we're not going to be able to keep up. So we either need more automation companies or we need simpler ways to do things so we can be faster or that the manufacturers can do themselves, right? So ease of use is, is, a, is a big, big opportunity in this industry. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, and also I would think, I mean, you know, everybody complains about not having enough workers to work on their stuff. Well, if you make it easier, you've got a lower barrier to entry for bringing people in to come yeah. and work on your robots. And then, <laughs> I would, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, absolutely, no, I agree with you, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then I forgot the other thing I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, you need, um, you know, we've always, we've always said that when, when I'd be like a, at a cocktail party or something like that, and people are like, oh, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, oh, yeah, I run an automation company and, and robotic work cells and things like that. Like, oh, you put people out of, out of work, right? And, and I said, no, I, I've never sold a machine to a company that was getting rid of people. I've only sold to companies that can't get enough people, right? Or they just can't keep up. They're growing. Um, they're usually hiring people like crazy, but they just can't hire enough. So they, they need to get some equipment. And what it, one of the, the real pleasures too was meeting an operator, maybe at the site visit when we were trying to sell the machine, talking to them, because what I've learned is the operators know 10 times more than the engineers do about the nuances of the actual operation. About so their job, they, imagine they, that. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the manufacturing engineer will tell you like, oh, these parts, they come in perfectly flat and they're straight, and there's never any defects. <laughs> and the operator's looking over their shoulder going like, no, uh-uh, they, no, no. So talk to, the, talk to the operators, they'll tell you the truth. So you get to kind of know the operators. You, you, you sell this machine, you work on the machine. And, and the way we always did uh, uh, FATs is we said, bring your operators to the FAT because they're going to be the ones that are gonna be operating this machine and they're going to have that insight. So they'd come and they'd be a part of the design review process as well. We wanted to, to, to include them. Um, and then you just see like the smile on their faces when they saw that machine and the robot moving around. And we always had a rule that you had to name the robot, you know, Charlie or Bob or whatever, you know, we, <laughs> we awesome. did a machine, did a machine out in Oklahoma. They called it, you know, I, re I remember this vividly because 
I think Oklahoma had just won the national championship and they, they had a big sticker and, and he slapped him in the robot. He goes, I christened the boomer, you know? So, <laughs> um, awesome. you know, so name the robots, it gives them ownership. And, and then when you go install it in the plant, they know what's coming in. They've already seen the robot. They're, they're, they're smiling. They're working with it. And it raises and elevates their skill level, right? So now they're just not snapping two things together or loading a, you know, a machine. They're operating this highly technical piece of equipment. Um, and it was, it's just, it, it's a feel good thing when you get to see an operator going from one of those kind of mundane jobs, maybe. Over the years, you sold them a bunch of equipment. Now they are the lead operator for three or four cells, right? Nice. So yeah, it's just it's a it's a really good feeling. Yeah, for sure. When I remember in my short time in manufacturing, which was was very very short, I was the director of advanced projects for FormLogic briefly. Hmm. Um, when we would buy you know a machine or we'd automate a process, I mean we would just we'd expand our throughput. We wouldn't fire people, you know, we couldn't have enough CNC operators to keep the shop running. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and quite honestly, you don't, you don't want operators doing some of these jobs. I mean, they always say the three Ds, the old dirty dangerous, right? Yeah. And, you know, dangerous is easy. It's just like, no, we don't want anybody to get hurt, right? You know, dirty, yeah, you're gonna have a hard time finding people to do that. But I, I think the worst is the dull. Um, I've seen, I've literally walked into factories and watched people doing, you know, just this all day long. And I'm like, Oh, you know, God bless them. Because I would, I'd put a bull in my head if I had to just do that every day. I just, <laughs> you know, I, it, sound, it sounds mean or whatever, but it, it's, and then, no, and I'm the same way. It's I mean, a job for them. It's just, it's just like, and I know that they don't want to do that all day long too. They want something, you know, more fulfilling and maybe they're not going to operate the machine, but maybe they move them on to another task, which is, you know, a little bit more intricate. Maybe it's something that is hard to automate or the volumes aren't quite there, but it's still, you got to snap a ring into a groove or something like that, that, that takes a little bit of dexterity and skill. At least they're, they're improving their skill sets. Right. Um, and then you don't have to go hire the, you know, minimum wage, dull, dirty, dangerous, you know, jobs. Um, so I don't think anybody would disagree that if we could somehow still keep everybody employed and get rid of those 3D jobs, that the world would be a better place. Sure. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. And look at, and look at, um, you know, rewind. Oh gosh, I'm going to date myself and get this wrong. You know, probably what, 15 years, whatever Facebook and social media really kind of started, right? 15 years ago, how many people were employed in social media, right? Zero. Well, probably next to zero. I know. But, and now how many millions of people are employed between, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and, and, and LinkedIn, Instagram and yeah. all this, you know, LinkedIn, exactly. It's like we create new jobs as humans, as technology, you know, progresses. Um, so I don't think we'll ever have a, a shortage of, of work to be done. Um, let's just get rid of the work that is not any fun. Yeah, no, my sister-in-law is a social media person. She makes way more money than me. So. <laughs> Completely agree. Well, I actually, another just funny story in college. So I was auto mechanic. My last year and a half, um, I got offered a job at a programming company and um, went to work for them. And we were working on this new thing called the World Wide Web. And it was literally never work. Write, never work. writing writing HTML in, in Notepad, right? There were there were no tools. We were literally writing in Notepad, all manual. Um, but we were building websites for some of the first companies out there. 
Um, and after I graduated, I was just like, you know, I've got this degree in mechanical engineering, but this this web thing, this might be something, you know, maybe maybe I should I should look at pivoting and, and going to do that. And I I got a couple job offers out in out in San Francisco and you know in the Bay Area and all. And I was just like, I you know. I don't know if I want to move out there. I'm, nah, I'm, I went to school for mechanical engineering. That's what I'm going to do. And so now I look back and wonder if I, you know, could I, could I have been one of the early, uh, early Facebook or Google employees at some point, but uh, be retired by now, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah. don't regret it. You know, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed my career in automation, and I, and I love it. It's all I've ever known. That's awesome. I mean, I love working in robotics myself and I started, I got my degree in computer science and I mean, I haven't programmed in 10 years. Now I do more solid works than I do programming. <laughs> so I definitely appreciate the multi multidisciplinary nature of working on machines and robots yeah. and um, yeah. the creativity. I mean, the fact that, you know, like you said, I mean, if you're not trying to figure out how to solve a specific engineering problem, you're figuring out how to, you know, standardize your process and make your company more efficient. Um, mm -hmm. You get to talk to people in a sales role, which is really fun. Um, you know, you can help develop professionals and bring people up, which is also really rewarding. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I had a uh, working meeting on Saturday where it was just four of us working on a thing and we all got out and everybody was super proud and happy of the work they did that day and like, oh, great job. Great work, guys. You know, high five. You know, and I mean, we worked a nine hour day on a Saturday and everybody was ecstatic. You know? That's like, awesome. How often do you That's get to awesome. do that? So, yeah. What's well, yeah. the old phrase, you know, if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Right. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's always, of course, there's, there's days I go in, you know, owning a company too, just going like, oh my gosh, I've got you know, HR issue here. Or I've got, you know, some accounting issue over here that I got to deal with and I, I don't want to do it. But then there's always those rewarding days when you're walking down the aisle of a, store or something like that and you, you would see the product on the shelves that your machine made um you know my uh my, my son when he was uh, a senior in high school had to have um, scoliosis surgery so they put a you know put rods in his in his spine and uh so i'm i'm in the you know the hospital room while he's recovering and i, I kept picking up like when the nurses would like open up these medical devices and throw away the, the packaging i'd grab the packaging and they were like, why do you keep grabbing the packaging? I was just like, oh, our machine packaged this. They're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, the machine we designed put that, you know, medical device into this package. That came off our machine. Badass. So, yeah, it was, it was, I'm like, can I keep this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, this guy's crazy. I think psych work. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. They're like, this is a weird, weird dude. <laughs> but that's cool. I mean, I, I don't know. It's amazing to see something you made out in the world. Um, it's I, I love kind of working on unique and interesting problems and, and you know, the new product development space. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's something exciting about, you know, doing something that, you know, has an impact or you know, being like, I got oh, to work on that. Absolutely. And yeah. Know. Yeah. It's something, you know, you know, you helped you helped the world in some way, you know, whether, you know, I mean, some people will say, like, you know, Make, making you know make, making the uh the uh, rocket propelled grenade you know, is not helping the world <laughs> but, you know uh, it's you know you can make that argument that no it's protecting you know, our troops when 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 they're off you know out out in the battlefield you need to make sure that you know they're correct um medical devices uh, save a lot of people's lives you know? oh yeah and without without equipment that made those medical devices or packaged those medical devices we, we wouldn't have that um you know i think a lot of companies can and say that you know they did you know covid work whether it be masks or we did test kits you know 
that was our contribution you know, to, awesome. to, to helping, you know, get through uh, for something that was you know, really impacting the world in a, in, a, in a very real way. We made face shields. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think everybody, you know, every, everybody in the automation world, I think in some way did, you know, some sort of COVID related project, which is oh, yeah. kind of cool. We all, we actually even worked together. We, uh, we had a bunch of, of film um really thick film that was in our uh, sample uh, um, uh lockers um because we would do we, you know, we made you know thermoforming machines as well and we had a sis not a sister company but a, a company that we were friendly with up in tampa um who they had a, 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 a the ability to make face shields right yeah and they were but they would, couldn't get film so we threw all of our extra sample film in a truck and, and brought it up to them and said, like, here, just, you know, make face shields, you know, out of it. It's just sample film. We're probably never going to use it. It doesn't have to be, you know, sterile. It's going to get sterilized anyway. So it doesn't matter how old it is. So yeah. um, it was cool. The, the industry kind of came together that way. Yeah. No, we ordered a bunch of material to our water jet company we worked with. And they, they yeah, like okay. cut all the profiles for face shields out of it. And then we assembled them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, That's awesome. Yeah. Similar. That's I mean, awesome. you know, and yeah. I just called those guys for a job recently and we bonded yeah. and we're like, Oh, Hey, remember the time we made face shields? Oh yeah. yeah. I remember the time we made face shields. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, so. hey nice. you know, it's, it's, it's networking, right? It's a, yeah. this is a, this is a small, this is a small industry. I've always said that, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta, uh, don't 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 take anybody off too much because it, it'll probably come around. You're gonna end up working with them or for them or <laughs> over them at some point in your career. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Uh, there was a guy I talked to, right? I think he was an army veteran, and you know, we we were getting to talk. He was one of the technicians at a company I used to work for, and you know, he said, you know, be careful who you what you say to who because you never know if that guy's gonna be your boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty true. Yep. I think early in my career, I, I really enjoyed burning bridges. Like there's, there's nothing quite so satisfying as just putting your middle finger in the air, air and telling someone to fuck themselves. But that's, yeah. you know, that's childish. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. Know, that's, there, there was, there was a bit of a joke at, at R and D. Somebody, somebody gave me a, a t-shirt one time that said, uh, I, I, I light my way by the bridges I burn. Um, <laughs> because I was, I was known as, um, I, I was I was never a believer in the customer is always right. Whoever said that was a customer, right? <laughs> no, the customer can be completely wrong, and they can be outrageous, and they can be you know they can be assholes. To be honest with you, correct. And it 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 really takes it, it, it takes a lot of conviction to fire a customer, and I've done it more than once. Um, sometimes because the customers just quite frankly they're just you know rude, they're abusive to my employees, and I'm like I'm not tolerating this. Um, nice. Other times it's just you know. You know, yeah, we're doing work for you, but it's just hard. You know, it's just, it's really difficult. We don't enjoy it. You're always beating us up over either price or this or that, or, you know. You want an extra feature in their flat rate. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so, you're not being reasonable. So I always, um, I had, I had a, um, uh, a salesman. Um, he, he, he'd been in the industry for, gosh, probably almost 50 years. And I'm going to, I'm going to write a book off all his sayings one day. Cause he's got all these great sayings, but one of them, he always told me, Jim, he would say, Jim would tell me, Sean, the only thing worse than no business is bad business. Amen. So, to that. and, and that really, you know, uh, struck home to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, you gotta be respectful, but I, I was always, there were always times where people would be like, are you sure you don't want to burn that bridge, Sean? I'm like, yeah, I do. I want to burn that bridge. I want to turn it into charcoal and I want to burn it again. Yeah. Nice. It's like we, 
we're I'm not gonna be rude, I'm not gonna be nasty, but we are not dealing with this person or this company anymore. Done. That's so. awesome. I feel like I've gotten pretty good at catching it pre-sale because I've worked for dozens yeah. of yeah. crappy customers and <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good at finding the red flags before it goes anywhere yeah. and just saying oh, no yeah. and Sometimes I don't say no in the first meeting. Like sometimes I, you know, I have to think about it because I'm like, ah, do I want to walk away from this? And then a lot of times I'll sleep on it and I'll be like, yeah, this is more liability yeah. than utility. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we all become wiser and calmer, I think, as we mature over the years. Right. Um, you know, we also learn from the times you get burned. Oh, so, to that. you know, we, we would we would always. If we learned something on a project, we'd, we'd add it to our proposal. So, for for example, we had one we had one project that I think we went through like four or five project managers on the customer side, and every Jesus. time we get a new project manager, it would be like, okay, we have to explain why we chose that, why we're doing it this way. They're like, well, why didn't you design it this way? Well, because your predecessor wanted it this way, and that's what we agreed upon. And then all of a sudden, now there's a third one, and it, it just it costs so much time and money to do so. We finally added to our proposals that, you know, if you change project management on your side, we reserve the right to charge extra, basically, right, and delay the project. And, and um, you know, after we put that in, we never really had to use it, but the customer knew it was there. So they knew going in, if they did change project managers, you know, there was that opportunity that maybe we would charge more. Now, yeah, did they have project managers change? Sure. And sometimes it was seamless and we're like, okay, cool. We don't need to charge them any extra. It's like, this guy gets it, you know, he's he's good, he's agreeing, let's just keep on moving on, right? But if you got one of those guys who, I wanna come change the design completely, I'm like, okay, well, here's your change order, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that's, <clears throat> I don't know. We recently switched to a business model where my company now only does time and materials work, mm. but it's a different industry. I don't think you could do that in, yeah. in machine building or in industrial <laughs> automation. I mean, in field robotics. Yeah, not not nearly as much. Yeah. We we did we had a couple time and material projects because nice. if you don't have enough, they were more earlier on, uh, and honestly, it was good customers who were willing to work with us. Um, there, there needs if, to be trust you, for that to work. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, if, if and these were customers that we had earned their trust so that they weren't even going out to bid anymore. It was like we were their sole automation provider. Um, and there's times we're like, well, guys, we don't have all the information, but we got to get going. So uh, and we're still going to redesign the product a little bit. Or like we need it, you know, several months from now, and exactly, if we bid right. it out, it's gonna going to extend that right. timeline. Yeah. Exactly. So we would say like, okay ballpark we're thinking it's about you know half a million however if it goes over half a million you know we are gonna you know charge you time and material and if it's under you, know, you won't pay half that. a million <laughs> if it's under you won't pay half a million exactly so it's the best of both worlds um so but there's a huge trust factor and a lot of companies and rightly so i mean there's a lot of automation companies out there that over promise and under deliver um and there's a lot of people who've gotten burned um so they naturally they want a fixed price right yeah, for sure. And I mean, we experienced that with some prospects. I mean, obviously, a lot of people mm -hmm. want a fixed price. And, you know, we just say, hey, that's not really our business model. Sure, sure. And uh, yeah. probably probably not a good fit. Yeah. And if it's open, you know, if the project's open and not fully defined, it's it's a lot tougher to do. Um, I mean, even, even when there's a full spec and the project is theoretically fully defined, it's never fully defined. There's There's always... 
there's always open issues or unknowns. Yeah, and I'm sure you've gotten like the nebulous spec that somebody sends you because they want a bid, but it really doesn't make any sense. And you're like, the spec contradicts itself. And if we did things this way, it wouldn't necessarily work well. Um, If we deviate from the spec, we can build you a better product and here's why. And yeah. Yeah, you know, like, we, come on, like we, you came we up with that, this in two yeah. hours. What the hell? <laughs> like, yeah, we do that time. So I always said, unfortunately, I think some of the, the I don't want to say worst customers, but the hardest to deal with customers are the ones who come to you with a machine idea already in mind. Like we want you to build us a dial indexing machine. That oh, that, Jesus right? Christ. <laughs> and, 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 and sometimes they're on the right track, but then you're like, but... If you did it this way, it's going to be better, faster, cheaper, whatever. So then they go, thank you very much. And they try to make it yeah, themselves and they come back yeah. when they can't. Well, <laughs> or, or sometimes like, no, this is what we want. So I mean, for, for example, I mean, this is again, going back, you know, 10 plus years, we had a company come to us. They had an old machine that was using pneumatic pick and place to, to put things onto uh to a uh, um, indexing, like a precision link type, you know, indexing conveyor. And they said, well, we kind of want, just a copy of this, but just upgraded, you know, with newer, newer uh, materials and all. And we came back and said, well, no, you really need to throw some, some scarer robots on this. Um, and that's the way to go. And it's going to be a little bit more expensive, but it's going to be faster. It's going to last a lot longer. It's going to be more flexible and all that. And they're like, no, no, we, we, we don't want robots. We, we want these air cylinders. So we finally, we said, well, okay, then we're not the company for you because that is old technology. We're not doing it that way. This is the better way. I'm, I'm sorry. Right. And, you know, six months later, they come back and said, so tell me about these robots. Right? <laughs> so. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Now, that's um, that's kind of how it goes sometimes. And I mean, like like you said, to not burning bridges, you know, if you're polite and respectful when you say no, I feel like right. a lot of stuff will come back. Absolutely. I, mean, I, you know, you, I tell people that you know, you pay me for our expertise right we could we could talk about it we could maybe disagree but don't be offended if i push back on you because that's why you're coming to you know the automation experts you're not you know if you if you if you didn't want to talk to an automation expert you would have done it in-house you would have done it yourself right but there's a reason you're coming to us because you want our expertise so um and i think a lot of customers understand that and respect that yeah for sure to your point about um you know, the, the competitor that always uh, over-promises and under-delivers. I had an interesting conversation earlier today, and uh, it was with a guy um, from, I'll say, another country where, like, labor is less expensive. I probably should just mm-hmm. say, say where he's from, but I don't know. It feels, I don't want to get it's political less, or nothing. It's less, it's less expensive. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a less expensive labor market. And so sure. Sure. he was saying that, like, a lot of people will give that country a bad name because, you know, they just will... <laughs> They'll quote like, you know, I don't know, like eight bucks an hour or whatever, but then they'll just throw incompetence at the problem and rank up as many billable hours as possible and just, you know, just do a shit job, you know, with with way too many human resources. And I don't know. I mean, that's an abuse of time and materials. Like, that's why people push back on it is because of companies that are unscrupulous like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's that, there's... um we decided a long ago, we, we, we were losing jobs because of lead times. Um, and it was, this was pre COVID when lead times were actually, you know, good lead times, but we, you know, we'd say, Oh, you know, 20 weeks on a machine. 
And, you know, like, well, your competitor is saying they can do it in, you know, 13. And I'm saying, I, frankly, like, I, I told you, bullshit. Yeah. I'm like, if you, if you had told me 19, we were 20, okay, fine, right? You know, but because this is an educated guess, let's be honest, right? Sure. But, but 13, like, no, they can't beat us by that much. And so we decided, you know, we could do one of two things. We could start lying to customers. And honestly, once you get to week 13, they're so invested. If you're late, you're late. There's nothing they can do about it. You know, they're going to be angry, but they're eventually going to get their machine, maybe, right? Or are they going to hire you again? Yeah. Right, exactly. Or you could be honest with them, you know, and say, no, I'm sorry. I mean, maybe we can do it in 19, maybe 18. Who knows? We'll have to see how the project goes. You know, they're not going to do it in 13, though. There's just no way. So, and, and you know, I always had to resist that urge 13 weeks later to call up the customer and go like, so you got your machine on the floor? 90% of the time, they'd call me and say, yeah, guess what? We're at week 13 and they haven't even started cutting metal yet, you know, uh, or, or of course. whatever. Yeah. So unfortunately, now that's given management a bad taste for automation. So now management doesn't even want to trust you know, another company to build the next machine because they're like, oh, well, they're going to lie to us too, right? So it's not good for the whole industry. I agree. Um, but we just decided early on, no, you know what? We're just going to be, we're going to tell you the truth. We're just going to be honest with you. We're not going to lie to get your, to you get your um, uh, work. We're not going to underbid the project and then change order you later on. Um, in fact, we're going to build in a little bit of fluff so that when you say like, ah, oh, it would be nice if we had an extra sensor there or if we had a little extra something, you know, on this machine, we can go like, you know what? Cool. No problem. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll, we'll throw an extra sensor on there or we'll throw an X, you know, we'll throw a something on there. Now you want you Sounds know, like an, art. A full vision, an extra full vision system at this station. Yeah, sure. Now we're going to talk about a change order at that point, but I don't want to nickel and dime you. I mean, ideally I want to build this machine, deliver it to you for the price I gave it to you and you'd be happy. Right. Um, so I just, honesty, honesty is just the best policy on, on all yeah. this stuff. And, um, when you talked about the foreign, you know, labor, um, it's, it's, this is machines as well. We'd have people, I walked into one plant that was making, um, electrical connectors, automotive electrical connectors. And he showed a machine. He's like, Hey, could you replicate something like this? And it was a machine. Um, it was a machine, I think it was from Taiwan, but I literally could have put my hand in the machine and it would rip my arm off. Oh, no Jesus. guarding mechanisms, cams, you know, I mean, yeah, no, no wonder it's whatsoever. cheaper. <laughs> yeah. And I said, no, I can't. I said, whatever you paid, I'm probably at least double that price, but I won't kill anybody either. Right. So, um, you'll make it again, back on workers you know, comp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, year, years later, I, I went back to the machine and, uh, they still had the machine and they had put Lexian guarding light curtains and everything around that machine. <laughs> and it was it was impossible to work on now. And by the time they did all that stuff, they probably could have bought the new machine that was safe. You know, How many people had to safe. lose an arm before they did that, do you yeah, think? <laughs> yeah, I have I have no idea. Yeah, hopefully nobody, but unfortunately probably I hate to say so, it, sometimes I mean, it takes an accident to get manufacturers to Well, let's be honest to too. Like if somebody was that cost sensitive in that way, that's probably what it took to change their mind. I mean Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. So I got a couple of stories about um, an underbidding competitor. So one is we were working on this um, software system for a floor cleaning robot. And the uh, company we're working with, we gave them a quote. You know, it was, I think it was like $300,000 and change. And, you know, they, they came back and 
the my contact there wouldn't tell me exactly why they didn't want to go with our quote, but he was just kind of shifty. And so I asked another person, I'm like, hey, what's going on? He said, oh, it was way too expensive. He said we could hire more engineers for that amount of money and do it ourselves. And so they sent it to this offshore company. The guys blew up our budget by like 50%, <laughs> but they underbid us <laughs> by like a factor of three. So it's okay. They got the bid. <laughs> Yeah, and, um, uh, but yeah. like you said, you can only do that so many times, right? Yeah, and then you're gonna you're gonna burn your name in the industry. So yeah, yeah, completely. Um, but yeah. it is it is super frustrating though. Um, you know, people sometimes would ask me, "Who's your biggest competition?" I'm like, my customers are my biggest competition because they're always trying to you know go find somebody cheaper to do it, and then it doesn't work out necessarily. Um, and then, you know, then they don't want to do any more automation because it went so poorly for them. And now I've lost them as a customer, even though I didn't do anything wrong. Right. I gave them a fair price for a machine. Yeah. So, well, that was back when yeah. we were doing f flat rate too, you know, before I moved yeah. away from it. So yeah, 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 exactly. Fair price, you know, mm -hmm. would have done great yeah. work. Timeline the whole thing ahead of time to make sure right. it was actually right. feasible. Yeah. Another time we had a startup come to us and ask them if we could make them a, um, a keypad for a navigational device. Um, and we, we asked 20 different vendors, and all of them quoted lead times. Um, some of them were like eight weeks. The lowest we got was four weeks. Some of them were six weeks. And our customer said, we want you to do it in three. Just just make it yourselves. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so we went and did it. Took us four weeks. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> we'll try. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes you have to, you know. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, we kept getting, things. we kept getting like design revs, so we would cut the tooling to make these things and pour urethane, and then they would give us another design revision, and we'd have to cut tooling again. <laughs> and then like, I wonder why the project's so expensive, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it costs, you know, a decent amount of money. It took, you know, we still got it done in four weeks, but. You know, yeah, exactly. They were like, why is it costing so much? We're like, because you changed the design four times. And we've, you, and you want it expedited. Done <laughs> that. We've done that a lot. Yeah. And that's when you do, you know, honestly, you do have to charge them. It's like, okay, here's your product. We've made the thermoform tooling. Oh, no, it needs to be a little bit deeper. Well, then you need to pay for a new tooling because that's the product yeah. that you gave us. Right? What I will say is after we did that one, one of the engineers from the customer side called it up and said, Hey, I'd love to work with you guys on all kinds of stuff. You're amazing. <laughs> like the fact that you did as that's well good. as you did with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's important. I think you see, you show your value, you show your worth. I mean, we are indeed, we were never the cheapest, right? We were either the most expensive or next to most expensive, unless there was somebody who was like crazy up here expensive, which yeah. I always said, if they're, if they're way up here or way down there, somebody didn't read the spec They're They, they don't want the work and they're quitting crazy and they don't know how to do it. Yeah. Or they're way underbidding it because they know they're going to change order it, or they don't understand how complex it is. But I also don't want to be average either. I want to, you know, I, I always said I wanted to be the luxury car of, you know, that automation world. I don't, I don't want to be the Hondas and the and the you know, Toyotas necessarily. No, you're delivering a Cadillac. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've used it's so funny over the years. I've used that 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 uh, analogy over and over again. I always have to change what cars I use. There's times where, you know, there times where Cadillacs were not that great necessarily. Oh, the plasticky know? years. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then there's, and then there's sometimes like, ah, it's Toyota. They're making a pretty nice car now, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'd rather have a Toyota Supra than one of those Cadillac ATSs. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's cool. So, you know, we're talking about content creation. Tell me about your, ask me anything. 
Yeah, so um, it was an idea that I've had for a little while. Never again, never had time to, to do it. Um, I decided that, you know, just to kind of give back to the community and help some other companies maybe that, um, you know, help learn from my mistakes or learn from my successes. Uh, there's a lot of people who would would ask me questions like, well, you know, but you know, how do you, how do you quote accurately? Or how do you deal with this customer that wants net 120 turns? Or how do you do this or that? So um, there's the, you know, the, the AMA is a, is a famous acronym from the website Reddit, which stands for ask me anything. So, you know, there'd be somebody who was, you know, I'm a, I'm a secret service agent, you know, AMA, or I'm a, you know, some weird job, ask me anything. So I said, you know, let's, let's do an automation AMA. And it started off with just, me in a room with not not anywhere nearly as nice as your studio. That's ah, nice. You're lying. It's it's no, it, it's great. I guess you know. I told you before the, the the podcast. I have a lot of respect for people who can keep this up on a regular basis. Um, I have a lot of ideas, but then the follow through sometimes is not quite as good. But so I started just in a room, kind of answering the questions, and I'm just like, you know, what? nobody wants to stare at my face talking to the camera because you know, I didn't have guests. You know, it was just me talking. Now. I'm a guest on a lot of other podcasts, which is a whole lot easier, by the way. Um, so I said, you know what I'm going to do? Um, I, I really enjoy, I do a lot of hiking. I really enjoy hiking. I get out in the woods. I'm like, I'm just going to answer these questions while I'm hiking. So it's kind of evolved into this thing where I, I go out in one of the national forests um, or one of the state forests, and people have sent me questions that have kind of collated. And I just talk about my experiences or my thoughts on particular subjects, on project management or uh, culture in a company, how to build culture, um, how to deal with problem employees, how to deal with problem customers. Um, so kind of some of the things that we've talked about. And um, I try to mix in a little bit of fun, you know, as I'm, I'm going through, you know, there's been times before I've gotten lost. Um, there was a, there was a <laughs> they were doing a controlled burn um, in one of the national forests. And the, <laughs> ranger, the rangers told me, go, go that way, stay on this side of this trail, you'll be fine. We're, we're burning on this side. And I walked several miles back and I had lunch in this little grove of trees and I was leaving and I looked back over my shoulder and literally the fire is a hundred yards away from that grove of trees where I was sitting. And so I kind of walked very quickly away from it, circle around, come back and, you know, I'm filming it, you know, putting splicing in between and I come back to the Rangers and I'm like, did your guys fire jump the, the fire line? They're like, yeah, where were you? I'm like, oh, I was back by that campground over there. Like, oh crap. Like, don't worry, it didn't get, you know, it didn't hit that area, but like, glad you're safe. I'm like, gee, thanks. You know, so, <laughs> you know we thought for sure um, you would have died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like I came back, um, my latest one, there's, there's a, there's a pastime called geocaching where you go using GPS coordinates to go find things that people have hidden in the, in the woods and things like that. So I kind of talked about geocaching while I was answering people's questions, you know, and then I'd find a geocache. And so I was kind of sharing some of my hobbies with some of the automation uh, knowledge that I've gained over the years. So that's on my YouTube channel, uh, which is just automation AMA, just search for it, you'll probably find it. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't do it, you know, I, I make zero dollars on it. I just do it for the fun. That's like me with this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a labor of love, right? It's, it's, a, it's yeah. a passion. Well, and it's consistent. And it, it's something that I'm always yeah. going to, release one of every week regardless of right. whether you know the workload is high or low and yeah it's just good to have early. sorry after yeah. after you yeah early in my career um you know in my when i was a design engineer um i, I worked with autodesk really closely developing autodesk inventor so i was i was on the beta the very first r1 beta 
and um, I was kind of a kind of a you know, really an unpaid contractor. I got a lot of little fringe benefits from them, but the first uh, cat I ever used, by the know. way. Oh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So my 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 thumbprints are pretty much all over that product for the first probably fifteen releases or so. Um, but but I started, you know, this is go- this goes back to Usenet. I don't know if you ever used Usenet, all the the, the text based. Okay, so Usenet was like a bulletin board, but you know, yeah. So um, I'm a I'm a bit older than you, I think. But um, so Maybe. Usenet was all text based, and people would you know ask questions, you'd answer them that way, and then and then it developed into uh, web based forums, you know, like using like PHPBB and things like that. Um, and it got to the point where people kept asking the same questions over you know how to use this this CAD product because I was quite honestly probably one of the world's foremost authorities in Inventor for a decade. Um, and and, and the, it became out of laziness that I just started writing up tutorials. Like, this is how you do this in Inventor. This is how you do this. And then I created so just, You didn't want to be asked anymore, can, basically? Yeah. I was nice. just like, stop <laughs> asking me this question. Here's, here's the link. Here, this, is how you, this is how you do a, you know injection mold um, cavity on, on a part. And, or this is how you do uh, derived parts. Or this is how you do X, Y, Z, you know. Um, and then I put built this this forum, and it became, you know, it became, like you said, a labor of love. You know, the forum would crash at midnight, and I'd be up rebuilding it till two in the morning because I knew at six in the morning people were going to start going to the site. Um, I can't tell you how many, you know, how many times it was like, you know, you know, the wife is just like, "You coming to bed?" It's like, "I five, five more minutes." Right? You didn't have people and, in yeah, Europe yeah. and Asia trying to use your Out. site. <laughs> We, yeah, we, we did. And they, I kept getting emails going, hey, the site's down. I'm like, I know. You know? But um, and that was something that, you know, I, I think over the decade plus, I, I maybe made $10,000, maybe, on just like Google ads. You know, it was not a money-making uh, awesome. you know, endeavor at all. But to this day, it's really cool. And it's been gone now for 15 years probably right um and, and a whole new generation has taken over doing you know the, the the teaching for 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 inventor but i still to this day will run into engineers at trade shows and all and they're like are you the sean dotson that had s dotson.com <laughs> in, 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 in mcad forums and i'm like yeah they're like i learned inventor because of you you know i used your site all the time oh my username was this on the site i'm like oh yeah i remember that username so you know, it's just this, once you find a passion of doing something, it, it becomes fun and you don't want to stop doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, when I was a kid, there was a website called robotstore.com. I don't know if you ever saw mm. that. I've, I've, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was hobbyist robot parts and, you know, you could go on and I would, mm-hmm. I would spend all my allowance money on it and, um, <laughs> I would, you know, build, you know, something I guess you could call a robot, but, you know, I would, I would make a lot of those and, um, <clears throat> I interned at SpaceX between undergraduate and grad school, um, and I was I was just IT. I, I didn't do anything too fancy, but I remember I met this guy, and he was in charge of making the SpaceX building look good. And I'm like, how'd you get that job? And I was like asking him about it because I was just trying to make friends. And he's like, well, I used to have this company called robotstore.com, and then I sold it, and now I do this. And I'm like, can I give you a hug? <laughs> That's awesome. So he goes, That's, I guess, and I went up and hugged him. <laughs> it's it's so funny how small the world is sometimes, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So what's uh? I just out of curiosity. So how how long were you at SpaceX? Only three months. I was an intern. I oh, I, I already had gotten okay. into grad school, and I was like had finished up my undergrad, and they weren't paying me enough to drop out of Carnegie Mellon. So 
Yeah, yeah. So this is back back before Elon went a little crazy. So uh, he was. I think. Well, I mean, space SpaceX has done some amazing things for uh, you know for the, for the space industry. I mean, it's 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 sad to see where NASA kind of went, you know, and and now the private industry is is taking over, but. Um, yeah, I think it's a good thing. You know, I mean, I think I think the private industry can usually do things better than the government can. I mean, I give look, I've been a total NASA fan my entire life. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's probably one of the more successful government projects you know, that we've ever had. Yeah, And it's one of the cooler um, programs in terms of culture. I yeah. mean, like, you yeah. know, they're on the forefront of like getting women into engineering yeah. and stuff, too. Right. I mean, yeah. There's yeah. And, NASA's great. And totally non-political, really, for the yeah, most part. For right? sure. No, I agree. Um, but but you know I love what SpaceX is doing though, and you know we we we'd be in trouble right now, you know, with without them, um, and, and, the, and some of the other companies that are yeah. out there that are that are helping us as well. Well, I mean, a lot of people are sort of copying them in a good way. I mean, like the idea yeah. of a reusable rocket, like everybody wants to do that now, and you yeah, know, I don't know who else has actually been successful with it, but yep. that yep. was a big research problem when I was there in 2013, and you know there were mm. a lot of people working on that. Um, I mean, just, you know, trying to get the cost down and, you know, vertically yeah. integrate and actually make yeah. rocket engines in America anymore, you know, instead of using those Russian ones off the shelf. Yeah. And so, I mean, there were, you know, there were a lot of positive things, um, a lot of innovations. It was a cool place to work. Crazy hours. I, I worked 19 hours my first Friday there. Oh, my gosh. And then they had me come in Saturday and I had like, you know, an hour to sleep <laughs> between my Friday and my Saturday shifts. Wow. So that was that was wild. Um, I mean, a lot of time like with attractive people in hot tubs in Los Angeles, right? I mean, they really made you feel like a rock star, and and then you know that that's how they got the long hours out of you. So, right, yeah, yeah. right, yeah. It was the it was the Google mentality. Though. We're gonna we're gonna throw a bunch of food and fringe benefits and yeah, and, at, at and, kids. Oh look, there's sleeping yeah. pods. You don't yeah, have exactly. Pods, right. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have sleeping pods, but I kind of wish we had because it would have saved the commute time on those, you know, right. those naps between yeah. shifts. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. That was cool. I mean, I, I, I would do it again if I if I mm -hmm. um, if I could turn back time and make the decision over again. Mm -hmm. Actually, the reason I ended up in IT was because I um, I waited till all the good internships were taken. <laughs> and it was good. I just, Gerald, you were a great boss. I, I had I had fun working in that department. But yeah. I mean, I'm in a roboticist now, right? So like, obviously, right. there's other stuff I was interested in that was going on there, but I just didn't think I was good enough to get hired there. So I waited till the last minute mm. until one of my friends who had recently gotten his master's in robotics just kind of twisted my arm and was like, Spence, you should apply. Like, seriously, you're as good as anyone here. Just apply. And finally, yeah. I, I went to this recruiting event because it was free alcohol. And I, I, you know, I drank, you know, more than I care to admit. And all the recruiters closed in on me, you know, because everyone else had left and I was still you know, like slugging, you know, full glasses of vodka and, you know, McAllen 24 or whatever. And, you know, just doing that. And, um, you know, they all closed in. They're like, so what makes you want to work for us? And I'm like, uh, honestly, I just came for the alcohol. And they were like, well, do you want to work for us? I'm like, absolutely. It would be my dream job. I just don't think I'm good enough, you know. And so, you know, eventually I, I you know, applied and they hired me and, you know, it was it was fun. So I'm glad I did it. Yeah, a lot of uh, when I got out of school, a lot of my you know classmates in mechanical engineering, they you know being in Florida with aerospace, they went to work for Lockheed Martin or Martin Marietta, and, and uh, well, I guess that's now the same company, but you know uh, Northrop Grumman, you know, and 
years later i talked to him and i'm like oh what do you do on a daily basis like oh well you know i'm analyzing this turbine blade i've been doing that for for a year you know thermal analysis and fatigue. i'm like oh that sounds horrible you know what i really enjoyed about about machine design was you got to do it all you know you got to touch all the parts of it sometimes you were a programmer sometimes you were a designer sometimes you were an electrician troubleshooting things that's so, awesome um that was you know that was fun my my only uh interesting uh interview and i've told this story a couple times but not everybody's heard it is uh there was a job fair and uh it was kind of a reverse job fair people walked you know to you and talked to you a little bit and uh they said oh these two people talked to me for a little while and i finally was just like what company are you with they're like um we're with a governmental a three-letter governmental organization and i'm like okay so give my information and, and I just said, what, what are you looking for? They're like, oh, we're looking for really smart engineers and all design engineers. I'm like, okay. So I get a call about two, three weeks later um, from an organization called the CIA nice. and they wanted to interview me. So I said, okay, that, that sounds really cool. Let's do that, right? So I go and interview with them and then I go through another interview process and then I go through the background check where the State Department talks to Everybody <laughs> forgot that you knew. That's hilarious. Right? Um, I then got invited up to Langley um, for a week-long process where they have you know, a lie detector test, psychological test, hearing test. They send you out. Um, they send you out with your start group, which I'm convinced that two of the people in our start group were actually agents that are just in the group, and they were almost they were like badly like trying not to be and i was like oh yeah i know that you know that i know that you know right hilarious by the <laughs> by the end of this process i was so i was just like you know what i'm not sure i I'm, I'm gonna be able to hack it you know for this because you know this is this is and, and i was gonna be the guy like in the basement making gizmos i wasn't even gonna be in the field right yeah, you got surveilled I, I for the entire interview process like oh, that sounds absolutely. brutal I know I literally I saw the same person multiple times, you know, around the area, just kind of, you know, like I've seen that guy three times this week, like over there, you know. Um, so I'm getting ready to leave. The, the guy, you know, is walking me out. One of the coolest things in the world, you get to walk across the seal. We've all seen it in the movie, the shot from the, the top walking across the seal. And uh, he said, like, oh, he said, well, before you go, do you want to shop, stop by the gift shop? And I'm like, the gift shop? I'm like. <laughs> I had to go through like four, four stations with guys with machine guns to get in here. Why is there a gift shop in the CIA headquarters? He's like, well, for people like you. And I'm like, well, hell yeah, I want a cup. You know, <laughs> so I got like a coffee mug and a ball cap, you know. Cigarette like, tray. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was a lighter that turns into a laser, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, would it have been a really, really cool job? Probably, but they basically said, "Look, this is this is what you, you're going to come. You're going to work." They said, "The hours suck. The pay sucks. You're serving your country." And when you go home, and when your significant other asks you how how work was, you say, "Good," and that's all you ever say. And if anybody who knows me knows that I'm way too talkative to just say "good" and leave it at that. So yeah, you know, in retrospect, and then years later, I actually um, I put in a Freedom of Information Act for my uh, interview records and this thick manila envelope comes back three months later. How much and, do you think it uh, cost them to interview you? 
have, oh God, a lot. Some money. Probably. I mean, because I mean, like I said, they, the people they talk to that I, you know, my kindergarten teacher they talked to, you know, my what the high fuck's school your kindergarten teacher going to know a value to them? I don't know. My high school wrestling coach, you know, my some of my college roommates, which by the way lied. They're like, we've never seen Sean drink too much, you know. I'm like, well, you guys <laughs> lied to the government. I'm telling you right now. So, but it's, it, you know, you're going through all of this stuff and then there are certain parts that are redacted and I'm just like, okay, what is important enough or bad enough <laughs> that they redacted these three sentences in an interview <laughs> with my high school wrestling coach, right? I'm like, no, no, no. He had a really <laughs> nice really, ass. <laughs> you know, it's a, maybe it was protecting him instead of me, right? Could be. Um, but he, he was the world's worst wrestler. <laughs> Well, we don't want to hurt but, his feelings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it was really, it was a really interesting insight into how how the government works, you know. But uh, I think, I think uh, in, in the long run, it was probably for the best, you know. I, I will say this: if anybody's ever taken a polygraph test, it's nothing like the movies. It's you have to sit motionless for an hour. If Jeez. you if you if you scratch your nose, screws up the entire test. I mean, you sit there motionless, and they're asking you super sensitive questions that of course your heart rate is spiking just because you're like, I can't believe they asked me that question. Right. So, um, yeah, very unnerving would not recommend it. Yeah. I, I heard they'll screw I, with you sometimes. Like if they find, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they, they would ask me psychological tests that, that, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you throw things when you're angry. I'm like, well, yeah, everybody's thrown something when they're angry before. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it says, it says that, uh, you know, you like to hurt small animals? I'm like, no, I didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. My, my mistake. I misread that. You, you did say no to that one, you know? And then by the Jesus time they Christ. get to the question 500, it's like, it says here you love your mother. I'm like, well, yeah, I love my, wait, what do you mean by love? You know, it's like you start questioning yourself at that point, you know? So it's 500. It's, that's wild. 500 psychological questions. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It is a crazy experience. And I have the utmost respect for the men and women who are, are doing that work. Um, I also trust none of them. Because yeah, that just <laughs> sounds like it attracts jerks. <laughs> like that. You got to be a bit of a sociopath, I think, to be honest with you. And, or and a no sadist. No offense to anybody who is in the CIA. Again, thank you for serving our country, but it takes a special type of person. It really does. So I, I think I'm better off, you know, being in, a, being in automation and robotics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> Not going to say the other thing I was thinking about. <laughs> Thanks for and your by service. The way, we are now on another watch list. I've been on like five or six probably, and now we're on another one because we talked about this. <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay, so maybe I will say it. So I've been thinking about maybe doing some work for the government, and um, yep. I don't know. It seems like a good way to um, you know stabilize the company's revenue streams, basically, and. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not ashamed to admit that's the that's the reason why. But um, hey, that's what we're doing. We're in business to make money, right? Correct. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I think that I mean we did you know defense and ammunition work. You know, um, we 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 looked at our customers and it was all for you know U.S. and a lot of it was um, not all of it. Some of it was more than lethal, but a lot of it was less than lethal. Uh, type type operations, you know. Um, some of it was aerospace stuff, so it's something that's going into an airplane or or or, or a missile or something like that, you know. Um, you know, I mean, you know, national security is important. You know, we we need to have national security now. 
what happens with that object after we build it is up to other people to decide, right? So um, I don't want to I don't want to give any spoilers away if anybody hasn't seen Oppenheimer, but you know, basically there's a there's a difference between a, the person who developed the bomb and the person who used the bomb, right? That's two very different things, um, and there are very important reasons for developing it and there were very important reasons for using it you know right wrong and different whatever your political leaning is but you got to kind of separate those two things sometimes yeah um and i think there's nothing wrong with that to be honest with you yeah no that makes a lot of sense and that kind of i appreciate you saying that because you know it's been yeah. something i've been thinking about a lot one well, part of the the kind of the thought process is you know do i really want to sign on to that amount of extra bureaucracy you know, because it just seems like 30% more administrative work, you know, it is. like tacking onto your project. It and is a lot. The other thing is, you know, do I want to subject myself to a polygraph and, and dealing with all that crap? You know, and, and that seems like something I don't really need in my life either. Um, De depending on, you like, know, depending on how deep you get into this, if you need security clearances at all. I mean, you you know, we, we were ITAR certified, so international traffic and arms like, regulations. Like, arms regulations, thank you, yeah. Um, you know, basically, it, it's kind of ISO. It's like, look, we're going to give you drawings and information. You need to make sure that there are certain people that can't view it. You got to control this. You got to make sure that it doesn't get outside your organization. And, you know, only the people working on the project are looking at it and it's stored securely and all. It, it's not that difficult getting, you know, I would suggest you hire a, uh, a consultant, though, who knows how to get certified just because, there are literally like seven different government websites that you have to register at and it asks for the same information on all of them. And then once you get the Uncle Sam number, you get the jobs number, and then you get the Eagle website number, and then you That's get hilarious. you know and, and you it's it's so ridiculously uh inefficient. Yeah, we're on way. Sam, but like the CMMC stuff's a little ridiculous. I don't know if that was so it's yeah, it's like you have to come up with like a hundred and fifty page document that says like what you're what you do for all your information security, and mm. you can tell that the people that develop this process know nothing about computers, because yeah, it's just right. convoluted nonsense yeah. that doesn't really, yeah. like you got to do it to tick the box, and the program's yeah. not even complete. So like hopefully yeah. this doesn't come off too whiny, but like basically to be CMMC yeah, compliant, all you have to do is say hey we're working on it, <laughs> and then you're compliant, <laughs> <laughs> and well, come up with a big like document. A that's kind of like, uh, you know, CE uh, over in Europe, you know, we, we built machines for Europe and we would be, you know, uh, we would, we would self comply. Right. And we would do it. We would do the risk assessment. We would do, you know, all the documentation we would get the, you know, do RF testing to make sure that the machine complied to all this stuff. And then it sits in a huge binder or on a server somewhere and nobody in Europe ever sees it unless there's a problem. Nice. Right? So it's kind of, so I remember talking to, it was, a, it was a company that we were looking at acquiring and I went to talk to them and they said like, oh, we're building this machine for, for so-and-so. And I happened to know who the customer was and I knew the project. And I'm like, oh, is, is that going to Poland? Like, yeah. I said, oh, I said, so you're dealing with all the, you know, the CE work. And they're like, the what? And I said, well, the CE compliance. They're like, no, we don't have to do any CE compliance. I'm like, if it's going to Poland, yes, you do. It has to be CE compliant, you know, and you have to, you know, self-certify it. And they're like, well, we're not going to. <laughs> and you know what? They probably ship the machine. And unless there's a problem, they're going to be fine. Now, if there is a problem, could bankrupt them, you know, who knows, right? So that's another one of those. It's like, all right, you know, 
I know the chances of something happening are almost minuscule, but you got to do the right thing. Sure, I completely like, agree. All right, you know, we're going to put that extra compliance. You Don't know, lie about how much time and money it's going to take to bring your thing to market. Don't lie about exactly. your lead times. You know, take your exactly. boxes, make a safe yeah. product. Yeah. Do the hard work. So, I mean, the, 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 the Hazards and risk assessment, it. not the Jewish dance. Yeah. <laughs> you do that, too. <laughs> the, the you know, government work, yeah, it's, it's a lot of regulations, a lot of hoops to, to go through. But I liken it to, that's why we, you know, we did med device. It's a lot of FDA compliance. It's a lot of hoops to jump through. It takes a lot of knowledge to do, but we grew that at our company because med device, they are usually, they pay really well and they're not afraid to build a quality machine. That's going to, you know, that's going to be pretty expensive, right? They're not, they're not popping out, you know, shaving razors that, you know, trying to get the margin down to, to, you know, to the least penny. They're selling these medical devices that are thousands of dollars each. So um, so it's a good, it's That's, a good, uh, market. I've only I'd ever say. really worked on like medical at the early stage, but we did, uh, a bit for a surgical robot. Uh, we worked on a prosthesis and then we did a handheld medical device. And yeah. I would say you feel like not a douche working in that industry. Like I'm, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. So I have, so though I have to complain though about you guys, cause you designed this medical device and now I'm not saying you specifically, but <laughs> people guys like, like, you, design, <laughs> like you would design this medical device. It would go through trials, it would get approved, and then they come to us and say, okay, can you automate this? And I'm like, yeah, but there's no markings on this part, and now we have to use a camera to figure out how to orient. And by the way, this slip fit is too loose or it's too tight. And I'm like, like, can you redesign all this? Like, nope, we cannot redesign. <laughs> this is the design. And I'm like, come on. Like, like, why didn't they why didn't they think about automation when they were designing the device? Um, and I'll be honest with you, that's a huge cost. I mean, there's so many times that we would have to put extra stuff on a machine to make up for the lack of design for assembly. Maybe uh, there's on, a maybe on, there's a team up opportunity here. There is. We would tell all of our customers, you know, big Fortune 100 med device customers, please get us involved at the design phase. Now we're not medical device designers, but we can at least look at that and go like, hey, if you guys built it the other way, we wouldn't have to flip the part three times. We could build it all from the bottom up, you know? Um, or if you, you know, if you, if your tolerance on your wire wasn't plus or minus three inches, it would be a whole lot easier. And so um, there is opportunity there, but I think a lot of those companies don't think about that. Like, well, we gotta design well, it first and then go through validation that could take, you know, years, I mean, trials, you know. It probably depends if it's like a Johnson & Johnson or like, you know, a startup that is, you know, like, yeah. you know, that is just kind of getting their legs good. under them. The Fortune 100 companies don't do it either. They, nice. they do not think about automation. They, they build the device and I'm, it, it works. It goes through trials, you know. But then you try to automate it, and it's it's difficult sometimes to automate those devices. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sorry uh, for for being an R and D guy, <laughs> making your life no, miserable. It's, <laughs> it's fine. I just sometimes I look at it like you just put like a little you know in the mold, just like a little raised mark. We could have like you know cammed off of that or something, and or or the camera even oriented, but like we literally have no idea where this piece goes. Yeah, no, it'd be fun to maybe talk about some of these. Uh, like the next time I'm going down something that looks like it's going to be manufactured at a higher quantity, mm-hmm. maybe I'll give you a ring and uh, yeah, we can. And there is definitely, you know, there's a difference between design for manufacturability and design for automation. 
Those are two separate things, right? And a lot of companies do think about design for manufacturability, of course, like how are we going to mold this thing or how are we going to produce it and what's the cost and things like that. They just don't think about the next step because I mean, a lot for of times, me, it, it always depends on it's, it's, it's hand built, right? Yeah. In the beginning. So, sure. And I would say it depends on like the, the anticipated production quantity. I mean, if it, right. yeah, of if course. you're only going to make, you know, like a hundred, then it's probably not critical to do that. Exactly. But. Exactly. Exactly. If you're making yeah. millions, you probably should do that. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yes. Awesome. Well, that seems like a good note to transition out on. Um, if you want to cut it, what are some uh, what are some of the things you'd like to plug on the tail end of the podcast? Um, I'd probably just talk about you know automation AMA and just finding me on LinkedIn and things like that. If you if you'd like to you know talk to me about uh, you know. Helping, helping scale your manufacturing or, or, you know, packaging or automation, um, you know, to get a hold of me, something like that. Sweet. All right, Sean, thanks for coming on. Uh, find Sean Dotson on LinkedIn, look at automation AMA. And uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us today. If you made it this far, chances are you'll like other episodes too. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Subscribe today to get notified when the latest episodes release and support the channel. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is sponsored by SKA Custom Robots and Machines. If you're in the market for robotics contract engineering services, please consider hiring SKA Custom Robots and Machines. They sponsor this podcast and they solve some of the toughest engineering challenges in the world. SKA Custom Robots and Machines can be found at SKA.Solutions. Thanks again, and see you on the next one.